Hear this portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him and in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Nathan. I was really surprised, Nathan, um, he had this lustrous beard that he shaved right before the Super Bowl. You know, I miss it. Uh, I'm Tim. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, so glad to be joining you here today uh, in worship. Um, so uh, I'll just get right into it. Uh, 55 years ago, uh, this new television show debuted called Let's Make a Deal. And uh, for a time in the 70s, it was the highest rated syndicated show in the country. And there was a three-year waiting list for tickets. And for those of you who might not know, um, this is how it works. Um, if you're selected as a contestant to be on this show, uh, you win a prize immediately. And it's worth, you know, a few hundred dollars. But then you get to choose a different prize hidden behind three curtains or inside boxes. And one of these three prizes is worth a lot, thousands of dollars. It could be a trip around the world. It could be a new car. Um, but the other two gifts, they're, they're duds. They're like fake money, you know, or a ferret, you know, what, what are you going to do with that? So let's make a deal. It's like life because, um, you know, you or I, we're the contestant uh, and we're giving something of value, of great value, but we learn that there's something of even greater value out there that we don't have, but we have a chance at it. And so we try to parlay what we do have in order to get something more. And uh, the problem is with this whole game is uh, we don't have all the information. We don't have x-ray glasses to see into the box or behind the curtain. We don't have a time machine to uh, jump in and see the future. So if we choose poorly, we can uh, end up with less than what we started. In trying to gain something greater, we can lose what we even have now. And we see, both in the game and in life, some people seem to walk out with a big prize. Other people seem to walk out with nothing. So I think most of us, we make plans to try to get the good stuff. And we make more plans to try to avoid the bad stuff. We ask ourselves, uh, am I on the right track you know, with my education or my career, with my um, relationships, 
with my health, with my retirement, even with my faith. We're constantly making these choices, but we can't see behind the curtain. So we're in the middle of a series uh, on Ephesians called, Who Am I? We're focusing on our identity and the church's identity uh, in Christ. And in week one, we looked at being chosen and predestined by God. In week two, adopted and appreciated. Uh, Week three, James preached about being saved by grace. And then last week, he preached about being reconciled to God. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about God's mystery revealed. And um, I want to know if you've heard any of these claims before. Uh, For instance, Jeremiah 21.11. There's a promise there where um, Jeremiah prophesies, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Um, He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you the plans I have for you. Um, And then with this Charles Stanley book, um, um, you know, I might buy it if you came up to me and told me, hey, Tim, I saw your name and your plan for your life in this book on page whatever, Um, because that would be like a Hollywood story. You know, a Hollywood to something I really like. It um, skips the boring parts, the waiting around. Um, Have you ever watched a cooking show where they do a five-minute shot of a water pot boiling or, you know, a fixer-upper show? Uh, where there's a four-hour shot of paint drying. No, you don't see that. You know, the meal is done in 30 minutes. The house is all made over in 30 minutes. Um, Speaking of Hollywood, there's this new show out there called God Friended Me. I've never seen this show before, but I suspect it might be a little bit like that show from the 90s called Touched by an Angel, except now with social media. Now, if you like this show or you work on this show, uh, you can correct me later if some of my assumptions aren't correct because I haven't watched the shows yet. Um, I do love anything that gets people to start thinking about God, so I think these shows are good. But my suspicions about these shows is um, for every plot, there's kind of a formula that um, there's a protagonist who's uh, in trouble. They find themselves in trouble. And then somewhere along the way in their story, God miraculously shows up. And they learn about what they should be doing with their life now for the rest of their life. And all this happens in under 60 minutes. And I often find myself wishing God was a Hollywood God so that whenever I ask him for something, he would answer, he would deliver in under 60 minutes. Uh, Because, you know, God is much bigger than Amazon Prime now. But it turns out God doesn't usually work in this way, the Hollywood way, the Amazon way. You know, sometimes God does show up miraculously uh, with supernatural power. But looking through the scriptures, that's usually at the beginning of someone's story. It's never in the middle or the end so much. Uh, We learn from 1 Corinthians 14 that signs, wonders, miracles, that these aren't actually for the believer. They're for the unbeliever to, you know, maybe wake them up out of their spiritual slumber. So the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is faith. You know, faith is not seeing but believing. Uh, Put it another way, faith is seeing only with a hypothesis, not a proof. And going back to the scripture that Nathan read, Paul refers four times to this particular mystery. In verse 3, the mystery that is made known to me by revelation. And in verse 4, 
in reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. In verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 9, um, he's trying to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. So James actually led us through this last week, this kind of theology, where he talked about how the Jews and the Gentiles were separated by a wall of hostility. And then this wall was torn down for the Gentiles by Jesus. And we now, Jews and Gentiles, can be one family. And not only can we be one family, but God wants to dwell in this family. And in this new identity and this family we have, we represent Christ in everything. So this wasn't known by anyone but God until Jesus showed up here on earth. Uh, there was some Old Testament prophecy about it. You know, for example, Abraham's seed would become a great nation, be a blessing to many nations. But for the most part, up until the time Jesus came, the Jews were separated from the Gentiles by their Mosaic law. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word for holy is actually kadosh, which means to be set apart, to be separated from. That was their concept of holy. But Jesus does eventually show up to rescue Jews and Gentiles. And now the people of God who are being set apart are the people who believe Jesus is the Son of God. Um, I tried to make a picture of where Paul was when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And uh, if you could see um, along the uh, uh, vertical axis, uh, this is more or less faith in God. And the horizontal, it's more or less revelation from God. So at the time that he wrote this letter, Paul actually had quite a bit of faith. And he had a, quite a bit of revelation. This mystery had been revealed to him. But um, it was actually quite a long road that got him to that point. Uh, he started in a very unlikely place. Paul, or before his name change, uh, Saul was his original name. He was a top leader in Jewish society. And he saw followers of Jesus as a threat to what he thought was godly. To him, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was still the supreme law. He's one of the top professors and judges in this culture, an expert on the law. And then when Christians started preaching about Christ, you know, he and the other Pharisees, they would, you know, call foul, like these people are not preaching the right thing. But instead of just, you know, criticizing them, he actually tried to get them um, thrown into prison. Uh, and he actually, you know, Acts tells us when Christians were getting stoned, Saul loved that. And it occurred to me that even though, you know, we're not violent like Saul, um, we're not unlike him. Because, you know, Jesus at one point teaches that if you hate a person or you swear at a person, it's like murder. So we might not have these um, bloody hands, but we do have violent hearts, okay? Now, Paul, coming out of that, he experienced God in a lot of supernatural ways, um, but I think the most supernatural thing that happened to him was the first supernatural thing. He was, on, um, he was traveling from Jerusalem up to Damascus because he wanted to round up more Christians up in Damascus and Syria and get them thrown into prison. And en route there, Jesus actually meets him in a supernatural way with blinding light. And he speaks audibly to Jesus. Uh, Jesus speaks audibly to Paul. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
And it's interesting, and, and, and I really love this because Paul was persecuting Christians. And from what Jesus says, Jesus takes that very personally. That when someone persecutes one of his followers, it's like he's being persecuted. So he tells, you know, Saul, why are you doing this? Um, when we see the transformation in um, Saul to Paul, it's actually um, astonishing in how sudden it is. I think a lot of us, when we find Jesus, it takes us some time. Um, I was thinking about Nicodemus, who, you know, heard about Jesus, heard his teachings, snuck uh, to him under cover of night, talked to him, and eventually, it, it looks like he became a follower. And I think a lot of us, that's kind of our experience coming to Jesus. Now, some people can actually um, believe in Jesus very quickly, uh, like Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus just goes in front of his booth and says, come follow me, and Matthew gets up, leaves everything behind. Or the fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all leave their nets to follow Jesus. But with all those people who come to Jesus uh, quickly, they're not out killing Christians. So Paul's transformation, it's, it's supernatural, it's extreme. Um, I don't think that Jesus tells Paul everything about what's gonna happen with his life certainly not this mystery that is now being revealed to him about the Gentiles. So we see Paul, uh, you know, with his reputation that precedes him, and none of the Christians want to talk to him. And God knows this. He actually sends Ananias in Damascus to be Paul's first Christian friend. And Paul then gets to start uh, training, being discipled um, in in the ways of of Jesus. And uh, this happens again with uh, someone from Jerusalem, Barnabas, who's this great encourager. And the church leaders in Jerusalem, they're still very suspicious of Paul. But when Barnabas friends Paul, they totally trust Barnabas. So now Paul can go to Jerusalem. He spends, you know, almost a decade in training with other church leaders. He actually spends a two-week intensive seminar with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. And then after this decade of training, Paul sets out on another decade of this amazing apostolic ministry where he plants churches in four Roman provinces, north of Israel, up into Syria, Turkey, and even when he can't do missionary journeys anymore, he's sharing the gospel with his captors, his Roman guards. Um, So he has this really um, amazing two and a half decade uh, period of ministry and life after he meets Jesus. Um, It was on his second missionary journey in Ephesus, uh, where he was very successful again, that he, um, the the, the people who sold silver in Ephesus um, were upset because, you know, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world was the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, and the, the silver trade was booming with that worship practice. And when people started converting to Christianity, it was this really big impact on the economy there sort of like when the financial system crashes in our country, we feel it in New York. And so these um, silver um, purveyors, they got really upset, they incited a riot. Um, They they basically grabbed Paul, rushed him into the theater of Ephesus, and it was there that the Roman authorities finally started taking notice of him, which led to his arrest and later his execution. Um, I did pick up a couple of photos that I thought might be interesting. There's a a photo of uh, him Uh, There's a photo of the Damascus Street where he was taken um, after he was blinded. 
Uh, this is called the straight way or the straight street. Uh, and then on the right, that is the remains of the theater in Ephesus where Paul is rushed into uh, during that riot. So Paul gives us this model where he's making plans, he's getting revelation, he doesn't have full revelation, uh, and he needs to adjust his plans. He was planning to, to take other you know, people on other missionary trips, and he gets put under arrest. And so he makes adjustments to his plans. And that's something that you know, we can do too. We can try to make plans, uh, even for God's glory, uh, but God will give us something different. I know that when the mission teams go to Rwanda, sometimes their plans change. I know for personally for me, a lot of my plans change. Um, you know, sometimes our plans are even thwarted. Uh, one, one example I was thinking about was uh, my ex-girlfriend from college. Uh, she was a pastor's daughter. We were in love. We talked about marriage. But, you know, as sometimes happens, um, people break up, and we broke up. And that was one plan of mine that was thwarted. And uh, another one I was thinking about was my mom. Uh, she passed away three months before my youngest child was born. And, uh, you know, I know the two of them, they would have been really close. Uh, it was like terrible timing. Uh, they just missed each other with one coming in and one leaving. So that was another plan of mine that was kind of thwarted. And I know these are sort of small examples of, of having to deal with, with changes, uh, certainly compared to what some people in our church have gone through. You know, I've gotten a little disrespect or slander, but, you know, some people have had to deal with abuse. I've been the target of racism, you know, a little bit, but not like how some people in our church have suffered. And I know some of you have had to deal with, you know, really big trials, um, the threat of deportation or the pain of divorce, um, a chronic, debilitating, painful condition, physical condition. And I even know people in our church who've had to bury a child. And these are really, really hard things. Um, and so, you know, we kind of fall back on that promise that God doesn't allow anything in our lives beyond what we can bear. And we do have access to the same God and the same love, the same power that Paul had to overcome all the changes to his plans. So just thinking about Paul, you know, listening to me, trying to explain his life briefly, you might be thinking, you know, Paul and I have nothing in common. So I decided to maybe add a few more people to that picture. So I'm going to add um, Ruth, Joseph, and Jonah. And uh, Ruth and Joseph are up here on the left. They have a lot of faith, but very little revelation. And then down on the right, uh, there's Jonah. And uh, he actually gets a very clear plan from God of what he should be doing with his life, but he doesn't have the faith to embrace it. Um, so Ruth and, and Joseph, um, Joseph had very little control of, over his life. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he was wrongfully imprisoned by government authorities. Ruth had control. She had choice, but she gave it all up. Ruth has this famous line, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you die, I'll die. Have any of you ever seen a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship closer up? Right? That's mind-blowing, what, what Ruth is doing for Naomi. Naomi says, I have nothing left to give you. And still, Ruth does that. She gives up her control, and she's so loyal to Naomi. So some of us, I think, are like Ruth and Joseph. We have faith in God. We do trust him. 
We don't know what his plan is for our lives. We know very, very little. Uh, God, uh, Joseph only realized God's plan after it had been completed, you know, when he was able to save his family from starvation. And Ruth may never have known that she was going to be the great-grandmother to King David. I don't think she was there for his coronation or heard about his anointing with Samuel. I think she, she never found out in this life. On the other hand, Jonah, he knew very clearly what God's plan was. Now, Jonah had this great gig. Usually prophets in the Old Testament, they brought the kings and the people bad news about idolatry and, you know, disobedience. But Jonah actually brought this great news that Israel's going to be restored from her enemies, and it came true. And so he was this great celebrity. And God tells him, all right, Jonah, you're going to have to leave all this celebrity behind. You now need to go to Nineveh, to those people that you hate, and warn them that my wrath is coming. So Jonah has a very clear picture of what he's supposed to do from God, and he can't do it. He doesn't have the faith to do it, so he runs the other way. Um, so I made a little four-box diagram to sort of try to summarize where we can find ourselves in different phases of life. Sometimes we don't know what God wants and we don't have much faith. Other times we might know uh, what God wants, but we don't have the faith. Sometimes we have faith, but we don't know. And, all, and in, in Paul's case, he actually knew a lot and he was able to embrace what God had for him. Um, now, some of us here, we might be like Saul. We might be no faith, no revelation. And, you know, if you feel like you're there now, but you're interested in faith, you know, please come and talk to me afterwards or with the prayer team who will be uh, down here waiting for, for you. Um, we don't necessarily have all the answers, but we want to help you. We want to encourage you. And we struggle with our faith too. So I encourage you to come and see us later. Uh, Jesus once taught when his disciples asked him about faith. Um, he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which, which is very small, you can say to this mulberry tree, for instance, be uprooted, planted in the sea, and we'll obey you. So Jesus says, you know, it's not about the amount of faith you have. It's who you're putting it in. Uh, that was his point. So again, maybe you're like Ruth and Joseph and you trust God, but you don't have any clue. Uh, Joseph was able to be a slave, to be a prisoner, and live this life of grace, not knowing what God was doing. Ruth was able to go to a field that had been completely harvested, picking out a few grains that were left over to try to make a next meal for her and Naomi. Um, they didn't know. They didn't know what God had in store. Like Jesus told his disciple Thomas, you know, blessed are those people who don't see, but they still believe. On the other hand, maybe some of us are like Jonah right now. We know what God wants from us. Maybe it's to let go of a good gig. It could be a job, a relationship, a hobby, something that's starting to become an addiction. Things could have started out innocently, but it's becoming too distracting. It's becoming an obsession. And God is calling us to something better, to something greater. But we may not want to let go. On the other hand, maybe we don't want to hold on to something of value that God has given us. You know, for a relationship, maybe we're done with a person. It could be a coworker, it could be a friend, a family member, even our spouse. God wants us to reconcile, but it seems irreparable. It seems like it's unfixable at this point. 
Jonah's story is kind of a strange one for a prophet. Uh, and I think God put him in our Bibles because we are like Jonah. Sometimes we know exactly what God wants from us, but we don't have the faith to embrace it yet. So I think at any given point in our lives, even our walk with Jesus, we're a mix of faith and disbelief. We're a mix of revelation and blind spots. So we need to think about where is our faith now? What are we putting it in? And try to put it in God. Now, um, I started this uh, sermon talking about having to make choices and decisions. Um, on the other hand, the Bible talks about how God is in control. He's sovereign. And I want just to talk a little bit about the tension there. So um, there's this little cartoon that I found. Two dogs are chatting with each other on, uh, walking down the road. And the dog says to his friend, it's always sit, stay, heal, never think, innovate, be yourself. And, you know, I'm a dog person. Uh, my wife and I, before we had children, we had this Rottweiler who, you know, it just feels like she loves us so much more than our children do. Um, but, but the question is, if God is ultimately in charge, what's the point of us trying to figure out anything for ourselves? Uh, but we still need to make decisions every day. You know, the fact that you made a decision to come here to worship, be with the people of God, that's a great act of faith, I think. Um, you know, he chooses, he gives us the power of choose. He thinks, we think. He innovates, we innovate. And we're still accountable for our thinking, the things that we do. We reap the consequences of these choices that we make. And some decisions that we have to make are very, very heavy. But uh, we don't need to be scared to make a decision because God is ultimately in control. He is ultimately sovereign. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So some of our plans, because we don't know and we're still struggling with our old nature, some of our plans are going to be wrong. Like me thinking I should marry that ex-girlfriend. But Paul says we make our decisions in faith. You know, I wouldn't appreciate my wife as much especially when we're in conflict with each other, had I had, didn't have all that terrible experience with my ex-girlfriend. So that experience, as hard as it was, helped strengthen my marriage for the future. Um, I think there are a few Proverbs from Proverbs 16 that also help capture some of this. Uh, I'm going to read them sort of in reverse order, though. So the first one is from 16, uh, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And another one is uh, 16.9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Uh, does anybody remember here how the 11 remaining disciples after Jesus uh, ascended chose Judas' replacement? They cast lots. So um, there are these kind of um, a couple of dice type devices in the high priest's breastplates and casting lots was actually a big deal in that Jewish culture and divining God's will. And so they actually used a similar process for finding Judas' replacement. But then the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised um, came at Pentecost, and the church doesn't do that anymore. I think maybe some churches still cast lots, but now we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit moving in Antioch early in Paul and Barnabas' ministry when the Holy Spirit tells the leaders in Antioch, 
set Barnabas and Paul aside for this non-specific work that I'm about to send them. And that's how it is. So our plans and our choices are ours. We're accountable for them. But the outcomes are still ultimately determined by God. It's not exclusively deterministic. And it's not exclusively free. And, you know, our systems of language, of our logic, they don't really explain this well. It's kind of a hard concept to digest. So I'm going to try a couple of admittedly geeky illustrations, okay? I'll be quick. Uh, consider light. Is light a bunch of particles or a bunch of waves? Isaac Newton said light is particles because particles travel in straight lines. Waves do not travel in straight lines. But then Thomas Young ran this experiment where he split light and recombined it, proving that light was waves. So light is like particles and like waves. Okay, there's one more. Uh, quantum computing. In traditional computing, we know that there's this binary construct, every bit is a one or a zero. But in quantum computing, there's qubits. And qubits can be one and zero at the same time. They can represent many different states simultaneously. And for some problems, having the multiple states uh, makes things computationally faster to solve. Um, so those are just a couple of examples that I thought about how things can happen even though it's hard to describe them. I think that's true of God's control and sovereignty versus our freedom to choose. Okay, so uh, Proverbs 16.4, it says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. God is a just God. He's never absent, but he's also not always obvious, right? And I was thinking, if we worship an obvious God, that's a small God. When Joseph finally saw what God was doing through the tragedies of his life, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Okay, the last one, uh, Proverbs 16.3, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Okay, notice here again, the proverb does not say commit your plans to the Lord and he will establish whatever you do. I know that's the way that I want to approach God a lot of the time when, you know, when I pray, when I make plans. God, hear my plans. I think they're for you. Just bless them. Make, make them successful. Make me successful. But the proverb says sort of the opposite. Um, you know, we don't need to ask for God's advice. We don't have to make decisions in faith. It's part of the cost of discipleship for us. Uh, so it's not free, but it's our free choice to make. Abandoning our plans for God's plans, like Ruth abandoned her plans for Naomi. So even in this life of faith, if we're walking with God, you know, we can still make errors. Um, Paul made some poor decisions, um, even with all the revelation that he had. For example, he and Barnabas had a big blowout fight and they split up, and they went their separate ways. And later, Paul writes a colleague, Timothy, that, you know what? I was actually wrong about that conflict. Barnabas was right. Uh, so even though Paul knows so much of God's plan, you know, he still made mistakes. And it's like that for us, too. Two of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church not getting along. But each of them were still able, be, they were able to hold on to God, and they each continued in faith, whether one or both of them were wrong. And I know with the conflict that we have in Trinity, which, you know, I think we're like any other church, usually there's um, a little bit wrong on both sides. 
So when you step into God's plan, he reveals his plan to you a little bit at a time. Uh, if you want to embrace the plan that he has for you, the, the plan that he's revealed, then you will become the revelation. You step into it. Um, I think a lot of you know that our mission statement here is uh, a growing people in faith, obedience, and joy as we go out to advance God's kingdom. And this is, this is the, the story of Paul. Now, I'm pretty sure all of us want the joy, but it's the struggles with faith, with obedience, that we want to skip, right? Skipping that messy, tedious stuff, the Hollywood way. The moments where we have to ask God hard questions, uh, feeling like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's the way of Jesus, if you think about it. And that's the way that, you know, putting faith first, and then obedience, and then joy. And it's no accident that in our mission statement, it's ordered in that way. We don't get to joy without putting our faith in Jesus first, and without wrestling with our obedience of him, surrendering the idols that kind of keep popping up in our lives. Um, there's a few people, I guess, in my circles, we're talking about Marie Kondo and decluttering. You know, you look around in your life and you realize there's a lot of extraneous stuff. Uh, idols in our closets, in our pockets, in our culture, in our subconscious. So uh, just, to, just to wrap it up, um, God did say, let's make a deal. And, you know, he, he sent us his one and only son to give us a prize that we can see. He tore the curtain in two. And all we have to do is accept it in faith. And as we do, he's going to reveal more to us, but we're still going to have to make decisions along the way. Some of them won't be the best decisions. Uh, and the consequences of those not great decisions are going to be more perseverance, more character, more hope. And that's the way we learn to make better decisions. So um, in, in closing, Paul says that because of this great mystery, that we are all heirs, we can be all heirs uh, in Christ together, he says we can now approach God with freedom and consequence. So let's do that now uh, in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you are a big God, you are not an obvious God, and that you um, have a plan, that you have the power to see that plan through, that you um, want us to be part of that plan. You want to come in and dwell with us. And we thank you that uh, you give us grace along the way uh, as we grow and mature, as we see only in part to make these decisions. So we pray, Lord, that we will be able to decide in faith and that uh, you will fix uh, what needs to be fixed as we um, walk and decide and follow you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now I'd like to invite those of you who um, have put your faith in Christ to uh, share in the Lord's Supper and communion. Uh, Paul wrote, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, we have two stations up here in the front and two in the rear on the landings. And I just invite you to come and share uh, in this meal with uh, a few other people in the community.